0: Well welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh and happy Maundy Thursday to you. Now I realize Maundy Thursday is not necessarily everyone's cup of tea when it comes to celebrating uh, the Holy Week season, especially in the more evangelical uh, areas of the church. But hear me out on this one. This is something that took me a while to to figure out having grown up in a non-denominational home where, and I I should say pan-denominational, my parents' Christians ever since they were young. Uh, Dad grew up and was uh, baptized, I believe, in the Presbyterian church and um, my mother as well. Uh, Dad grew up in a Baptist church for a little while and at one point, once he became a Christian and then got into choir directing, he was choir director at first, let's say, East Wheatier Presbyterian church, he did that for a number of years. Then he was at Oneonta Congregational Church. I still don't know what the congregational part of the congregational church is. And then we were part of a Methodist church. Then we were part of a Dutch Reformed church. And then uh, my kids uh, grew up in the Lutheran church. Their mom found a, uh, a church to worship here in Southern California, Lutheran Church of the Cross, actually found the preschool there. And then as our relationship ended, the kids and I continued on in that uh, church and uh, it was home for nearly half my life. And now I've since remarried. My wife Lisa and I uh, have made our home in a different part of the Southland. And so we're no longer part of that congregation. But I learned a lot about Holy Week and church calendars and the traditions of the church while I was in the Lutheran church. And I d- d- don't consider myself not to be in a Lutheran church. I'm still ordained as a Lutheran pastor. But these days, especially, you know, having done, the, this is our 12th year of the Bottom Line show, um, I've spent a quarter of my life in broadcasting doing what I would call pan-denominational work, which quite frankly is, we and the body of Christ have to be the body of Christ unified. That's one of the things that we see in Holy Week, especially as Jesus is has left the upper room. They're not in the, in the last supper part anymore. They're on their way to Gethsemane. And he gives a commandment, which is what is celebrated on Maundy Thursday. There are three different... Mandates, if you will, that come up on Monday, Thursday, and so I thought today would be an appropriate time for us to kind of take a look back at the um, the Holy Week celebration to where Jesus, you know, brings us up to, and then kind of walk us through Monday, Thursday, because when you get right down to it, if you want to split hairs on the specifics of the church day and the church calendar, if you were a Jewish person who were celebrating Passover and getting ready to uh, experienced the Passover feast. And you know, of course, the culture was celebrating the, uh, the Easter feast, um, you know, getting ready for all that. And Jesus comes into the middle of all that, intersects himself into, I guess, injects himself into the narrative and changes the whole narrative. It's kind of cool. But I think in all honesty, for those of us in the Western world, having a separate Maundy Thursday and Good Friday celebration is very helpful because it helps us understand not only what Jesus went through, what it means to us as Christians, but also helps us get the timing right. Now, remember that our way of tracking time is completely upside down from the way the Jews used to look at it back in Jesus' day. Reality number one, when you see how God creates the heavens and the earth, if you take Genesis literally, which I do, then what do we see at the end of the days? We say, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. The way God calculates time is different than the way mankind does. Mankind, in Western civilization especially, loves this. When the sun comes up, the day begins. Air quotes for our friends at myhopenow.com. And when the sun goes down, the day ends. But it doesn't really end because we have these artificial light fixtures that can keep us up all night, quote unquote. And then we start a new day when the sun comes up. In Jesus' day, the day ended when the sun went down. And so, quite frankly, I know it sounds a little backwards, but when the scripture, when I believe it's Moses and Genesis tells us, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, there was evening, there was morning the second day, etc. What he's saying is, the start of the day is when the sun goes down, when the sun sets on the day prior to. In some respects, somebody whose life is ending, we say, uh, you know, the sun finally set for them. My kids, uh, their mom passed away a couple of years ago, um, and, and each of them chose to honor her with some body art, as it were. Sometimes if you use the T word, some people get upset. And they knew that her favorite place in the world was the beach. I think it's because it was warm and inviting. It sounded good. It smelled good. And when you look out, you see limitless ocean, limitless possibilities, and kind of it shows the eternal nature of God. I mean, now you and I know that the earth is round and the water goes here and it winds up there and it may go in a circular fashion, but when you're sitting on the shore looking at the ocean, the water's going everywhere. And so they, uh, to commemorate their mom, they each got a little uh, tattoo of a wave. Uh, My son just has a wave. His older sister, the middle child, Kaylee has a wave with a scripture verse. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then my oldest daughter, Emily, has a wave, and it shows the sun in the background, and the sun is setting. And you know, it's interesting because that literally, when we think of sunset, we think of the end of the day, and that's the way God does too. So the idea that we have Maundy Thursday and Good Friday is a little foreign to biblical scholars because they would say, okay, as soon as the sun set on the day prior, then the new day begins. So what we would call the Thursday of the week. And this is how some people justify the three days or on the third day issue. Technically, the last supper or the last pa- the Passover would have started as the sun went down on Friday, because then that means once the sun's down, even though we would call it Friday night here in our culture, that means it's Saturday. So that's when you'd have the Passover is on the, the minute the Sabbath begins. Jesus' account here makes room for the fact that you're not going to be able to do the trial and all that stuff on the actual Sabbath. So he and the disciples have the final Passover meal the day before, So if you follow that logic. So as the sun is setting on Wednesday, excuse me, on Thursday, and it's going into Friday, all of this is going to happen in this period of what, 12, 18 hours, from the time the sun goes down on what we would call Thursday night until the noon to three time when Christ is on the cross, On Friday, knowing that by the time the sun sets on Friday, Jesus has to be off the cross in the tomb because they can't do anything with his body, otherwise, they would violate the Sabbath. So, isn't it thoughtful that Jesus planned everything and God's will is is fulfilled so that God's people aren't violating the covenant they have with God to keep the Passover, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? But Jesus is inserting himself in here, telling the disciples, look, the good news is there's going to be a new covenant. So this is what we would call the Last Supper, meaning it's the last Passover they're going to have. And we call it Maundy Thursday to delineate that. Knowing that once Jesus is arrested on what amounts to be early Friday morning, then all of that trial and all that stuff is going to happen. And by noon on Friday, Jesus is hanging on a cross. I just, I I love and marvel at the fact that God, fully God and fully man can act in a way that would not defy God, would not cause God to, I mean, well, God can't sin, that's not going to happen. But he would do something like this, doing it in such a way that the earthly part, the man part is upholding and honoring the godly part. So the timing of everything is everything. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and he does so in a very regal fashion, right? He enter, He tells the disciples, go get the cold. Go get the foal, the cold of a donkey, and I'm going to ride in on that. Why would he do that? Well, we've talked about that earlier this week. The reason Jesus did that on what we call Palm Sunday is because he's establishing his royalties, establishing his deity, if you will. He's basically not holding back anymore. He's letting the Jewish leaders know I'm the guy, and this is what's happening, and this is the reason why it's happening. So there we go. I mean, the the Pharisees have to deal with it. The people are waving palm branches. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna. They're basically giving him simultaneously the royal processional that he deserves, but also it's kind of a dirge, if you will. In, In the same way, it's kind of a funeral procession as well, because what's going to happen later in the week is there's not going to be any more Jesus. So good point to note right off the bat is that as we are looking at Maundy Thursday, if we look back to Palm Sunday, Jesus, again, fulfilling the earthly responsibility of a royal king, but the heavenly responsibility of a triumphal ruler. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, part two of our look at Maundy Thursday, we're gonna get into Holy Monday and Holy Tuesday and find out why those days were so crucial in the Lord's ministry, even though we in the evangelical church often don't commemorate them. Let's take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives.
1: The last 12 months, there has been almost 1.7 trillion invested in investment grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why market volatility?
0: Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We are walking through Holy Week here on this Maundy Thursday, and the name Maundy Thursday comes from the Latin word mandatum. Uh, that's where we get the English word mandate uh, My Pastor Bill Bartlett, when I was coming up in the Lutheran tradition, actually said, I'll do this on the camera for the My Hope Now people. You can see where my goatee ends. But, you know, your jawbone right here is called the mandible. And the mandible, think of what your face would look like if you didn't have a jawbone, right? Well, the mandatum, the mandate, is where we get a mandate from Jesus Christ, a new mandate. Now, there are three components to this new mandate. Oftentimes, in the modern church, we only look at one of them. So as we get closer to what these mandatum's really are, we began to see that the events of Monday Thursday, which is what we're commemorating today and hopefully your church is having a worship service tonight, uh to celebrate the last supper, the first communion, the washing of the feet, everything that happened that evening before Jesus was arrested. And then I realized you may be having a Good Friday service, Friday, if that makes sense, where you commemorate the uh, the death of Jesus and take some time for the weekend to reflect on what would happen on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, conquering sin and death and hell. Um, If your church service only has one service for Good Friday, I would really recommend, I mean, it's too late to change now, obviously, but consider having it in the middle of the day instead of the end of the day. Because oftentimes we find churches that are saying, okay, we're going to pack everything into Good Friday. We're going to give you the Last Supper. We're going to give you the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to give you the New Commandment. We're going to give you the trial. We're going to give you the crucifixion. All of that jammed into one service. that goes on forever. And it happens at a time when, quite frankly, what the church was doing at 7 p.m. on Good Friday was hiding. They weren't celebrating anything. They weren't worshiping anything. They were in hiding. Jesus came in to Jerusalem on a donkey on Uh, what we call Palm Sunday, has his triumphal entry. On Monday, that's a day that is not often referred to much in the church, but it's Holy Monday. That's a day, according to Matthew 21 and other passages of Scripture, where Jesus goes to the temple. Remember, all the Jews had come into Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the, the Passover. They're there to give their tithes and their offerings and pay their temple taxes. And when Jesus got to the temple, which is what a good Jewish person would do, what does he find? In the courtyard of the temple, not the temple itself, but the actual courtyard of the temple, you see Jesus encountering money changers. These are I always thought, why would they do that? I mean, it literally was not until I got into seminary 10 years ago, where someone actually sat down and explained why this is such an egregious offense. The Jewish people had their literally their own temple currency. It was separate from Rome. Oftentimes we think of Jesus is the Christian savior, and there are Jews. They just don't get that he's the Messiah, and Rome was the enemy. But quite frankly, Jesus had two enemies. Rome was no friend of Jesus, but neither was the Jewish magistrate, as it were. And so he walks into the temple courtyard. They haven't even gotten into the synagogue yet, and he sees money changers there. So if you're going to pay your temple tax, your temple tithe, and you bring currency that's not temple currency, you have to exchange it. Just like if you go on a trip and you've got dollars and you need uh, euros or you need Australian dollars or whatever you need to get, you go to a currency exchange and they tell you what your dollars worth in those currencies. Hopefully it's worth a bit more than those you have a little more buying power. But imagine that at church. Can you imagine going to church tonight to a Monday Thursday service or on Easter Sunday and someone says, I want to put some money in the plate and one of the ushers pulls you aside and says, excuse me, sir, um, those are U.S. dollars you want to put in the plate. But in all honesty, uh, you need to use church coins or you need Baptist bucks or you need Lutheran lira, whatever you want to call it, Catholic cash. It's ridiculous. And Jesus sees this and says, whoa, wait a minute. And then the poorest of the poor people, remember Jesus said, "Are two sparrows not worth one penny and yet your father makes sure they're fed and clothed, et cetera, et cetera. Roger paraphrased there. That was a direct reference to if you were in the lower end of the economic food chain, if you will, And it was time to come make your offering at the temple you didn't bring a tenth of your the first fruits of your crop or whatever you had you basically bought a couple of doves or pigeons on the way paid your penny or your denarii whatever it was and then you came in and made your sacrifice and everybody was cool with that except at this temple where jesus goes in and he sees that there are inspectors at the door and the inspectors say Uh, Now, hold on a second here. I'll get my long flowing beard for the My Home Now people. Long flowing. Hey, I'm sorry, but these two, uh, these two birds are unclean. So if you want an approved sacrifice, air quotes, you have to go inside the courtyard here and purchase them from our vendors. Now, remember, denarii, denarius, whatever, it's a day's wages. Take the figure minimum wage for eight hours a day. It was enough to just get you, I mean, Literally you see in scripture where Jesus says, if a worker needs his wage, don't withhold it. That was a direct reference to the fact that some people were so poor, dad would go work all day and they paid him at the end of the day, he'd spend it on the way home and buy a couple of things for dinner or whatever it was, and then go home and they'd have some money to live on. Or he'd take it home, they'd got it out for a day and then mom would go shopping the next day while dad was trying to make some more. But a denarii, denarius, whatever, were that was a day's wages. And typically, three times a year, you'd go to the temple for the feast or whatever, and you could give up three days' wages. But what if you went inside the courtyard and they're charging you 50 denarii, or 60, or 75 in some cases? That's two-thirds of your annual income if you do that three times. And who's got that money on them? These people are living hand-to-mouth. So Jesus, understandably, says, wait a minute, righteous indignation, knocks the tables over and says, my house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of iniquity, or maybe more accurately, a den of thieves. Needless to say, ruffled a few feathers that day. But what happens next is truly amazing because the next day in Scripture on Holy Tuesday, as it were, and in there, depending on which translation you read and which gospel rendering you have, Holy Tuesday could also be the tail end of Holy Monday. It all depends on time of day and which interpretation. But Holy Tuesday is the day Jesus actually goes back to the temple And when he goes back to the temple, who's there to greet him but the Pharisees? And what question do they ask him, Matthew 21? They ask him, uh, you know that thing that little stunt you did yesterday with the table and the whatever? By what authority are you making these distinctions? Where did that come from? In other words, Jesus, we're not questioning what you did because quite frankly, we probably deserved it. But we want to know why you. See, the question that the Pharisees are asking is not, you know, why did you knock over our table and mess up our card game here, but rather, who gave you the right to do this? Now think about that for a moment. The the, the indignance here. (laughs) These guys are like, yeah, we know we're wrong, but who gave you the authority to do it? You can't tell us. We're the law around here. And so what does Jesus do? He does what we in the body of Christ need to do more of. He goes on social media, gets mad and says, well, Fox News says that you're wrong. No, he doesn't do that. He really honestly doesn't. Instead, he uses logic. He uses wisdom. And he does so, I believe, with gentleness and respect. He says, before I answer your question, why don't you answer my question? And then he asks him a question. He asks about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He asked them a question about John's baptism. Now, remember, in the Jewish tradition, the Jews would baptize for the washing away of the sin, knowing that Messiah was coming at some point. But John the Baptist did it in such a way that he didn't do it in the synagogue. He did it out in the Jordan. He did it out, you know, locusts and wild honey and crazy hair and camel skins and all that stuff. John looked like a rock star. He did not look like a Pharisee. But there were people saying, wait a minute, this guy's baptism is incredible. And he's talking about, you know, uh, here's my baptism, but wait until the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie shows up, prepare the way of the Lord. I mean, he's coming. I'm baptizing you, telling you that my baptism is here until he gets here, and then his baptism is eternal. That was John's job, and he did it well. Wound up losing his head for it. The Pharisees were doing the ceremonial, oh yeah, we'll do baptisms too. But when it came to John, they did not condone what John was doing; they kind of condemned it. As a matter of fact, the whole case where uh, Philip, or me, Herod and Herodias, and and the daughter, the dancing and the party, they basically put John in prison because he was being too much of a distraction to the Pharisees. And when Herodias' daughter shows up and does the dance and blah, 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 and says, you know, what would you like for your birthday? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist because she she knew and everybody in the room knew that John was calling out the fact that Philip had taken his brother's wife and it wasn't right. So John lost his head for this. But the Pharisees did nothing to protect John. They let him get thrown in prison. They let him get executed. So Jesus asked them this question, John's baptism. Was that from God's authority or was that man's authority? And they answer the question going, hmm. And you can hear them now with their little tassels and their beards. He's got us. And what do we do? If we say it's of God, then we didn't condone it. So therefore, what does that make us look like? But if we say it was of man, then it makes it look like we're playing to the crowd instead of to God. And so they respond, we're not going to answer. We don't know. And so what does Jesus say? He says, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. <laughs> How's that for fair play? So all this has been happening to build us up to Monday, Thursday where the Pharisees are getting more and more upset and they really want Jesus arrested. And on Monday, Thursday, they are going to get their wish. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the conclusion of Holy Tuesday. And what exactly is Spy Wednesday? That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Maundy Thursday edition of The Bottom Line here on Bright on KNSN, on KLDC, KLTT, and of course, our friends at myhopenow.com. We're watching the video of this. Uh, we're talking about Maundy Thursday, the mandatum, the mandate day, the day that Jesus basically had to go to the cross. And so that's one of the mandates. Second mandate is that uh, the greatest of the kingdom is the servant of all. Jesus demonstrates that in the early verses of John 13 by washing their feet and saying, hey, look, this is the example. The foot washing is the lowliest of the low for a servant. And I am doing this for you to show you that this is the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Uh, The next mandate, of course, is we have a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later on this hour. But finally, the fourth mandate, this is the one that progressives hang out on all the time. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And so their theology becomes love God and love other people. It's just that simple. The problem is their version of love means you don't have to do anything. Just let them be the way they're going to be. And pat them on the head and hug them and love them and affirm them. And that's not what God does for us. If he did that for us, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. By sacrificing himself on the cross but he had to be turned over holy tuesday jesus is back at the temple and he's being accosted by the pharisees who say hey you know what authority do you have to do this and he says well what authority do you have i mean to either say yes or no to john the baptist and they say we don't know and then he asks them a parable he says there was a man with two sons and he tells the first son, I have a vineyard, go work in my vineyard. The son says, yes, I will. And then he doesn't. Second son, he says, go work in the vineyard. The son says, no, I won't. And then he does. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees, which man obeyed his father? And you can almost hear them kind of going, the one who did what he said. What, what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. The one who did what Jesus did, did, did. Exactly, and then Jesus rubs it in and says, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into heaven before you because you know the law and you know the scriptures and you know all of this stuff and yet you know that the essence of a relationship with god a right loving relationship with god is that you obey his commands not because it carries favor with you but because you love him and you want to obey him you want to and it doesn't matter what your words say your actions do all the talking for you so speaking of actions Wednesday of Holy Week is what is sometimes referred to as Spy Wednesday or Silent Wednesday. That's just the day that Jesus was anointed with alabaster, the, the the perfume and the cologne. And Judas gets all mad and says, we could have sold that for 30 silver, whatever pieces it was. And Jesus says, look, she's preparing me for burial, basically. And Jesus, Judas gets all mad at him and goes to the Pharisees and says, all right, I've had enough. I'll do it. You want me to turn him into you? I'll do it. And since I'm from inside, you know, we can make it look like it's a good deal. They offer to pay him 30 pieces of silver. He says, tomorrow we're doing the Passover. I'll let you know. I mean, that's really between the lines there. So here's the mandate. Jesus has to go to the cross. If he doesn't go to the cross, take on the sin of the world and pay the penalty for all of our sin. Mankind is doomed. He has a mandate. His followers have a mandate. The greatest of the kingdom will be the servant of all. We have a mandate to love one another as he has loved us. All these mandates on Monday Thursday. So where does it lead? It leads to a wonderful, glorious event that's also one of the most painful to endure in all of mankind. More on Monday Thursday in just a moment as the bottom line continues.
1: Life insurance will never replace the person you love, but that money can help you get through life when it feels impossible. When your life insurance claim is denied while well, you're already dealing with so much, you need someone on your side. Stephanie Cover of Cover Law used to work for the insurance companies. She challenges and understands the way insurance companies think. Hire Stephanie to file a life insurance appeal while everything is still fresh in your mind. Don't let the insurance company get away with greedy behavior while you're in mourning. Stephanie Cover will do everything in her power to get you the financial protection which was promised to you as a beneficiary of the policy. The money from the life insurance proceeds can supplement your income so you can support yourself throughout the process of bereavement. Save Stephanie's number or call her now at 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Or you can fill out a contact form at kbrightradio.com/coverlaw. Stephanie Cover. She knows the other side.
0: Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. I give the formal greeting again here at the bottom of the hour because this is the half hour on the program where the entire Bottom Line Show family is together live. And I'm so grateful that you're here with us. Of course, today being Monday, Thursday, it's the day before Good Friday. We're wrapping up Holy Week. And uh, don't forget the, uh, those who hear this on the uh, network are going to hear the National Crawford Roundtable podcast coming your way. At the end of this half hour. Uh, we've been looking at the Holy Week activities, and uh, what's happened in the culture that Jesus has inhabited, of course, is on Palm Sunday, he rides in on the triumphal entry on the donkey, Hosanna, Hosanna, the palm branches, etc., and basically he's riding in as a conquering king, but also it's a uh, kind of a funeral dirge, if you will, for him because he's going to eventually lose his life on the cross. Now, he's not, not going to lose his life necessarily he is going to give it up. And that's a huge distinction that we'll make on tomorrow's program. But for now, know that on Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry, Holy Monday, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple because there were some serious injustices being committed against God's people. I mean, the overcharging of the transitioning currency from outside currency, to temple currency, the gross overcharging of the disallowing of the smaller sacrifices and you'd have to buy them from the church. And that's where he gets mad, where he, I mean, that righteous indignation. We saw this last week with the shooting death in Tennessee, and there were so many people are so angry and, and they want justice. Of course they do, because these innocent lives were taken. But it's interesting how in this case, that cry for justice can only be answered by one who is purely righteous and true the world's justice isn't going to be any better than the crime that was committed. You know, but there's a big difference. People talk about the things that they hate and what they don't realize is that the real battle is between good and evil, not I hate you because you hate me and you hate the things that I love and you know that, that type of thing. So here's Jesus being pure justice and pure righteousness by saying, I'm overturning the tables, get these money changers out of here, stop overcharging people for their, uh, their temple uh, sacrifices My house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Then on also a holy day, holy Tuesday, Jesus comes back to the temple because it's still Passover week and they're sacrificing and celebrating. And the same Pharisees see him and they confront him and they ask him, Hey, you know, that stunt you did yesterday with the tables on what authority did you do that? Notice they didn't say, how dare you come in here and overturn the tables? They weren't. I mean, talk about turning the tables on someone. But they were, they were more concerned with the authority than whether or not he actually did it. They knew deep down, yeah, we were wrong. We shouldn't have been doing it this way. Kind of sounds like Martin Luther and the Reformation, doesn't it? I mean, the Catholic Church had gotten to the point where the corruption was everywhere. There's money being spent on buying indulgences and things of that nature. And he calls them out. And what do they say? You don't have the authority to say that. They didn't say, you're right. We shouldn't be doing this. They said, you don't have the authority, so you need to be quiet. We're excommunicating you. The Pharisees kind of do this with Jesus. They're like, hey. And Jesus says, well, what do you mean, by what authority do I do this? I've already told you I'm the son of God, but let me ask you a question before I answer the, your question. By what authority are you saying that John the Baptist is either good or bad? What, you know, Where did John's baptism come from? Notice he focuses on John, but it's all pinpointed toward them. And when they won't answer, because they know that if they say it's from God and they didn't approve it and didn't appreciate it, then they're being blasphemous. And if they say it's from mankind instead of from God, then he's just some crazed radical and they didn't do anything to stop him. So when they say, we don't know, he says, then I'm not gonna answer your question. That was fair. But then he forces them to admit that they were wrong by asking them, he does a couple of parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants and the vineyard owner. And in the parable of the two sons, especially, he asked them, you know, the parable says the vineyard owner had two sons. He asked them both to go in the field. One said I will and then didn't. One said I won't and then did. Which one honored his son? And they basically had to say the one who did the father's will. And then he rubs it in a little bit. He goes, you know what? Tax collectors and prostitutes, the two lowest ends of the spectrum here socially, are going into heaven ahead of you. They're getting better rewards in heaven instead of you and you know the reason why because they see this and even they acknowledge that and here you guys are Israel's teachers and even you can't acknowledge it so then the next day they're frustrated of course they're looking for a way to arrest him remember there's Jewish court and there's Roman court and the Jews would love to put him to death but they don't have a law to do so so they want to try to arrest him take him in and then say wow our hands are tied let's hand him over to Rome so Rome can do him in But they need someone who will agree to actually take him and so on silent wednesday or uh, spy wednesday as it's called in some parts of the world that's the day that judas is so indignant he's so horrified at the fact that this woman would come and break an alabaster jar and let the perfume be uh, drenched all over jesus from head to foot why didn't we use that? If you're going to do something with that, why didn't you just sell it and take the money and donate it to the poor? Not that Judas would ever have done that either, but that was the right thing to say, he thought. And Jesus says, look, she's preparing my body for burial. She's doing a good thing. People are going to remember her for what she's doing. And he says, fine. Well, I'm so mad. I'm going to go tell the Pharisees where you are tomorrow. And I'm going to agree to turn you in because I'm mad. Well, Scripture tells us that Satan entered into Judas for him to do it. Let, let's not think for a minute that Judas did this of God, though it had to be of God because this was God's will. But when Judas has Satan enter into him, he goes and makes a deal with the Pharisees and says, I will tell you when we're supposed to be getting tomorrow, Gather tomorrow, and I'll tell him. Which brings us to where we are right now. Maundy Thursday. Maundy is an old English term. Um, it's from the word mandatum in the Latin. The English word mandate literally means to something, do something that we have to do. Um, when you have a mandate or a commandment from Jesus, it's not optional. It's interesting too. Uh, in the old English, there was a word mond, m-u-n-m-a-u-n-d, And it can be used a couple of different ways. If it is used as a, uh, uh, a, a verb, if you will, It means to beg for alms in fact um the mond or uh, people who were monders or were mondating i guess uh they were that's the basket that the beggars would hold out would hand out and uh, they'd hold it out and you know please you know alms for the poor that type of thing um it's interesting because they would do that but at the same time uh the english royalty in medieval times used to put together what were called mondi purses and what they did was, if they were going to Mass, this is that Catholic Church thing again, they were going to Mass the day before Good Friday, traditionally, they would hand out these purses to the poor, basically to make sure that when they went back to Mass on Friday, they would, the poor would be home and they would not be out begging. So either way, when you think of us as the poor ones begging for salvation, the bread of life, God gives us way better than a Maundy purse, that's for sure. But nonetheless, we find ourselves with these mandates. There are four of them, at least, if not five. The first mandate, of course, is that we have a new commandment to love one another. The second one is the mandate, if you will, that the old covenant is about to be eliminated. The third mandate is that we would serve each other as servants. The fourth one is that Jesus had to go to the cross. So we think about this. There are some symbols in Luke chapter 22 that oftentimes we make more of than we should, and other times we don't. Think about when Jesus is giving what we call the words of institution. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat, or eat this all of you, depending on the translation. This is my body, given for you. Some people will say broken for you, but literally given for you. I like given better because it talks about the free gift of salvation. Sure, his body was beaten up, but there was not a bone broken. His body technically wasn't broken. It was beaten, but it was given for us. And then he says, do this. Eat this bread in remembrance of me. Well, he's still here. That's got to be confusing. And then after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it for all to drink, cup that had wine in it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I come back once again. So why is that so significant? What's up with foot washing? And how do we get the mandate to love one another so horribly wrong in modern culture. Let's answer all those questions on the other side of this break as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Maundy Thursday edition of The Bottom Line show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad you've tuned in today. I know Maundy Thursday is kind of a weird holiday. Uh, not a lot of churches celebrate it. It's kind of like Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is signaling the start of the 40-day period, period known as Lent, and it's a reference to the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, with no food and no drink before he was tempted by the devil. And it's a time of reflection for us. It's a time for us to uh, uh, focus on our faith, and you know, by giving up certain things that we might use as crutches, like social media or certain types of food. But Monday Thursday is interesting because it literally represents the split in the days or i should say in the day that jesus was taken into custody and crucified in the jewish day the minute the sun went down the day before passover jesus and the disciples celebrate the passover meal judas runs off to do what he's going to do they sing a hymn and then they start making their way to the garden of gethsemane in our culture and then by the time they have a trial goes on all night long Jesus is on the cross from noon until three, and then he's dead. And then basically they take him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. The stone is rolled in front of the tomb. And then it's literally the Sabbath and the Passover is beginning. But in our world, though, we know that the day technically doesn't officially, according to the way time is kept, it doesn't officially the day doesn't change over till what we call midnight. And midnight is right in the middle of the dark period. Now the Bible, it says there was evening and morning the first day, so if you were a good devout Jew, the uh, evening ended, or the day ended, as soon as the sun was completely down. So if you were celebrating the Sabbath, then that meant on Friday night, the minute the sun went down, then basically it's technically Saturday morning, you have your meal, and then you you do what you do. Jesus did this on the day before, knowing that they would not be able to keep the Passover if they did it any other way. I also did it this way, too, and part of the reason why I like the Maundy Thursday services, as I mentioned, is the fact that the thing with Maundy Thursday is it is a time for us to kind of delineate the difference between here's Jesus and the Passover and the new covenant in his blood, and then the next day is when we commemorate the day that Jesus went to the cross. Can I add a little extra drama into this? First of all, we have the washing of the feet, which I mentioned earlier. Only John's gospel captures this in John 13. And remember that they're in the upper room. Typically, if they were in a home that was hosted them, uh, a servant would come and wash their feet. And typically, because roads were so smelly and stinky and disgusting, it would be the servant who had the shortest amount of superiority or seniority there. But when Jesus removes his outer garment, still has an undergarment on, grabs a towel, puts water in a basin, and starts washing the disciples' feet, he explains to them, this is how you prove that you're the greatest in the kingdom. You are willing to be the servant of all. That's part of the mandate. Later on in John 13, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, little children, uses the word technia, which literally means teeny, tiny, young, impressionable. These are all grown men. But he he looks at them and says, look, here's the most important thing. I'm giving you a new commandment, a new mandate. Here's another mandatum. Mandatum number one, we're getting a new covenant. Now it's in his blood, not in ritual sacrifices. Mandate number two, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Mandate number three, everyone will know that you as Christians, Christ followers, are his disciples if we love one another doesn't matter your background, no matter how young or old, tall or short, male, female, doesn't matter. What does matter is that you have the love of Christ in your heart and you share that love of Christ with your the communion of your brothers and sisters, but also you reflect that in the world. And then the fourth mandatum is that Jesus had to go to the cross. Even though Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prays the prayer, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want it, I don't want it, and yet that he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. In other words, not me, what do you want done? I know why I'm here, and I know what I need to do. Now, this is really kind of, I'll throw something interesting in here too, because there are people who are going to say, okay, Maundy Thursday, we get it. Jesus goes to Gethsemane, prays the disciples, Judas sells him out. They go to, to the garden, uh, Peter cuts the ear off of Malchus. Jesus heals him. They take him. The disciples scatter. Jesus tells Peter at dinner the night before, you're going to betray me three times. Peter says, I'm not going to do that. And then while the trial is going on, Peter betrays Jesus three times. We get all that. But meanwhile, remember the culture outside, the Jewish culture is celebrating Passover. The pagan culture outside of that is getting ready to celebrate the start of of spring with the Easter celebration. Now, the Greek word uh, here for Easter, there's three words that all sound similar and they've gotten, you know, they could get kind of mixed up if you're not careful. The Hebrew verb, pasach, is the root for the Hebrew noun, pisach. It's also the Greek word for the word pasha. Now, check this out. Pasach, remember, pasach is the uh, Hebrew verb. It means to slip or limp. It's a direct reference to a blemished lamb that was used for sacrifice. It also reflects the human conditioning, the condition rather of waffling between two different positions, if you are paw-socking. The Hebrew noun, pisach, interestingly enough, means to protect. You know, it's interesting, there is a pastor, uh, a guy calls himself a pastor, wears the rainbow collar and everything like that. Who is talking about the issue that he said he believes Jesus is transgender? Remember in Matthew 23. Jesus is looking at Jerusalem. He's about to enter the triumphal, uh, the city triumphally, and it, it, he's got tears in his eyes, and he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings." This guy was trying to make the case. He said, hey, you know what? Jesus said, you know, in Matthew, uh, oh, Jerusalem, I want to be a mother hen. I am a mother hen. Like, no, no, no. As a mother hen. So we have pasach, which is to slip or limp. We have Pesach, which literally means to protect. And so it's interesting because pasach is where they get the word Passover, Oftentimes we think of Passover as, well, yeah, the angel of death passed over the homes where the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost, but the Jews in ancient times referred to the Passover uh, using the word Pesach, which means to protect. Think of a mother bird. Now, if you're watching on my home now, you're going to laugh because I'm going to flap my arms. A mother bird is flapping her wings and flapping her wings and doing everything she can to keep anything away from what? From her young in the nest. And if those kid birds are in the nest and she's protecting them, that's the Pesach. So the Pesach of God protects over the pasach of our sinfulness. It's interesting because the desire that Jesus has, what he says in Luke twenty-two 15, I've desired, I've eagerly awaited. It's that same intensity. But he does so in a way that says not that he is wanting to be worldly and carnal. That's what, literally, that's how people used it in Jesus' day. They would say, oh yeah, I've got this kind of intensity. I mean, I really want to celebrate. I really want to party. I really want to do this. Jesus says, look, in the same way those people want to sin, I want to celebrate this Passover with you. I want to do something good. But here's where the words all come together. The Passah, the pisach, and then the final uh, Greek word, Pascha. So for us as New Testament believers, the word Pasach in the Hebrew, which means to slip or limp, is also the root word for the word Pesach, which means to protect. And that's the word that they used for Passover. Ironically, Pasach is also the root word in Greek for Pasha. And guess what word that translates to in English? Easter. So basically what you have here is Jesus coming into the Passover and saying, I am the Passover lamb. I'm not one of those sacrifices that's going to come in with a limp, but rather I am a Passover lamb that will come in protecting those for whom I'm sacrificing myself for. And then for those outside the church, where we talk about the word Easter and people say, no, 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 we have to say resurrection day. We can't say Easter Sunday. I think you can say both based on the fact that that Hebrew word Pasha, or Pasach rather, is not only the, the root word for the word Pesach, which means Passover or to protect, but it's also the root word for the English word Easter. And so now, while the world might celebrate Easter with peeps and, and bunnies and Easter egg hunts and things like that, we celebrate the Easter that commemorates the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that makes us people of the Pasha. Let's get some final thoughts on this Mandate Thursday, Mandatum, Mandu Thursday, coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, welcome back to this Maundy Thursday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Glad you've tuned in on Terrestrial Radio. You may be listening to the audio podcast or if you're watching on My Hope Now. Yeah, we took up a lot of file space on this one, but uh, I felt it was worth it to kind of walk us through Holy Week uh, for the video side of the equation, realizing that tomorrow being Good Friday, we have a great program lined up for you to talk about Good Friday and the seven last words of Jesus. But to get us to Holy Week from... Uh, The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to Holy Monday, Jesus overturning the tables in the temple courtyard saying, my house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. On Holy Tuesday, Jesus back at the temple being accosted by the Pharisees who want to know by whose authority you're doing all this stuff. And Jesus basically tells them two parables. The one about the parable of the tenants who are basically renting a vineyard from a landowner. And every time he sends one of his representatives to come collect, they wind up you know beating him up and sending him somewhere else so he finally sends his son and they kill the son and figure we're going to take over the whole vineyard a direct reference to the fact that god sent his son into the world while the world was yet full of sin and uh, saw him as a way to basically say look there is repentance available for those who are willing to have that debt forgiven but the only way to do it in the worldly sense with the vineyards was you got to pay the the price we know that we can never pay the price for our sin apart from the blood of jesus christ and so that was one of the uh, uh, illustrations that jesus used the parabolic form with the uh, the pharisees and then on holy tuesday he also tells the story of getting them to admit that they were wrong in the way they handled john the baptist that he has supernatural power jesus does and that he truly is the son of god by what we call spy or silent wednesday judas has gone to make arrangements with the pharisees to turn Jesus in. So on Monday, Thursday, you have the disciples literally having the Passover meal a day early from the rest of the culture because of what was to come. And Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to have this meal with you. And then what does he do? He basically says, here's this bread is my body after they've eaten the meal. This cup is with wine in it is my blood. My body will be given for you. My blood will be shed for you. And the new covenant now is not in your Torah obedience that you remember from the Old Testament. The new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. God's still operating in blood covenants. That's just the way he does business. Going back to Adam and Eve with the first sin and the animals that were killed to create the skins that created clothing for the atonement. So Adam and Eve wouldn't think about how naked they were. Which they wouldn't have to worry about if they had not eaten the free the the fruit rather the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So on Monday Thursday we celebrate these four mandatum's. The first mandate is that Jesus says, uh, basically, here's the deal: the new mandate for anyone who wants eternal life is the blood of Jesus Christ. Believe it was shed to pay the penalty for your sin and receive Him as Lord and Savior. Second mandate: anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom. It's got to be a servant of all jesus demonstrated that in john 13 with the washing of feet third mandate a new commandment i give you jesus says in john 13 34 and 35 love one another everyone will know that you are my disciples jesus says if you love each other the way i have loved you god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son first and foremost so that we would not perish but have everlasting life not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him And then, of course, the fourth mandate is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup meaning going to the cross. But then he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. And it was. Jesus Christ went to the cross, took on the sin of the world, and his death, burial, and resurrection proves that the grave can't conquer him. He took our sin and shame with him to the grave. All we have to do is repent, turn away from our sin and toward, fix our eyes on the cross of Christ. Can you do that? Have you done that? In your own strength, you can't, but by the supernatural grace of God, you can. And when God taps your heart and says, it's time, this is the pathway. I want relationship with you, but the only way is through my son, Jesus and his death. How are you going to respond? That's the question for all of mankind. And that's the bottom line.